Welcome to episode 307 of the Deeper Christian Podcast. This is the podcast to help you study God's word, know Jesus intimately, and discover how you can build your life around Jesus Christ. I'm Nathan Johnson, and in today's episode, I wanna talk about God's grand redemption. Let's dive in. We have been in a study in Titus chapter two, and we've been walking through Paul's grand declaration to Titus. And let me just read it so it's fresh in our minds. Here's what Paul says in Titus chapter two, verse 11 through 15. He writes, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us that denying ungodliness and worldly desires we should live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all lawlessness and purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good works. These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority, let no one disregard you. If you've missed any of the past studies, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to those. But I want to focus in very specifically on verse 14. Last time we were talking about this idea that, that we should be looking and anticipating the return of Jesus Christ. And then Paul says this. He says in speaking about Jesus, our great God and Savior, he says that Jesus gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all lawlessness and purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good works. And what I like to do is I just want to walk through that verse with you. It really is just a profound thought that Jesus has given himself for us, that the God of the universe actually gave himself for you. In other words, he wasn't forced. He wasn't coerced. He willingly laid down his life for us. And, and what was that purpose? Well, Paul says that, that he wanted to redeem us from all lawlessness. That word redeem has this idea of to liberate or to redeem a captured person by paying a demanded price for the return. In other words, it means to set free or rescue someone. So, so what has Jesus done for us? Well, he has literally paid the purchase price by his own blood and he's redeemed us. He set us free. He has released us from captivity to lawlessness, that, that we are no longer under the chains and the bondage to sin and death, that, that we now have life in Christ Jesus if you just read through Romans chapter six, this is a major theme that Paul works through. But let me just give you a few of the verses from Romans chapter six. Here's what he says in Romans six, six. He says, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, speaking of Jesus, in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. And then he says down in verse 12 through 14, he says, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts and do not go on presenting your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, 
but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. In other words, he says, you've been set free from sin and death. Why would you keep submitting and yielding your life unto sin? Rather, submit yourself to God, yield your life to him, and live in the new reality of what he has done in you. A few verses later in Romans 6, verses 17 through 18, Paul says this, But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you obeyed from the heart that pattern of teaching to which you were given over. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. In other words, think how incredible this is. You and I were slaves to sin. We, we were chained in captivity to sin and death. And, and the only option we had was, well, we didn't have any because the wages of sin is death. And yet God, who is so full of mercy, though we were sinners, while we were shaking our fists in rebellion to him, Christ died for us. And he's set us free. He's redeemed us from all lawlessness. And now we no longer have to keep giving ourselves over to sin. We don't have to keep living in the lifestyle of death. We actually can live free, righteous, holy, godly lives in this present age, which is Paul's commission to us earlier in Titus chapter two. And he goes on in our passage and says, not only has Jesus redeemed us from all lawlessness, but it says that he has purified a people for himself. That, that word purify means to cleanse or to purge of evil, to make clean or to purify. In other words, he didn't just set us free and said, okay, good luck. Uh, have a great life. Rather, he set us free and then he cleaned us up. He, he, he literally purged us of all that sin and evil. And now he's desiring you and I to be a pure and spotless bride in the midst of this very dark and dank world in which we live. So though we are surrounded by darkness, though we are surrounded by sin, though we are surrounded by all this culturally garbly gook, we actually are called to be pure vessels for the living God. And we are called to live, as he says in Titus chapter 2, verse 12, that we are to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and we should live self-controlled, righteous, and godly lives in this present age. And in other words, we are called to be holy. That word holy or holiness has really gotten a bad rap in our modern culture. A lot of times people see it as a list of do's and don'ts, and it's become this idea of legalism. But throughout scripture, every time you see the idea of holiness, it is never a negative thing. It's always a positive. And the idea of holiness is this idea of being unlike or set apart from the world around us. And so God is holy. He is not like the world around us. And as a holy God, he has called us, his people, to be holy. That, that we are to be set apart and unlike the world around us. That yes, we are in the world, but we are not to be of the world. Or as I've often said it this way, we are in the world, but the world is not to be in us. 
And in other words, we are to be a different, a peculiar people living in this world. That, that, that when the world looks at your life, they should say, um, there is something different about you, that, that you are not like us. What is it? And as Peter says, we should always have a ready defense to give of that hope of the gospel, that, that hope that lies within. So as we're looking at Titus chapter two, think about this incredible declaration of what Paul is saying. He says that God has come, he's given himself for you and he has redeemed you from all sin and darkness and worldliness and, and all the filth of this, of this culture And he's purified you. He's purged you of all that evil. He's cleansed you and made you clean. He wants you to be holy because he is holy. And then not only that, he goes on and says that this people that he has purified are his own possession. I love this idea throughout scripture that God is our inheritance. For example, in Titus chapter three, verse seven, it says that having been justified by his grace, we would become heirs according to the hope of eternal life, that we are heirs of life. Or as Paul says in Romans chapter eight, verses 16 through 17, the spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, listen to this, also heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may be glorified with him. And this really ramps up in Ephesians chapter one, three times he talks about this idea of inheritance. In verse 11 of chapter one of Ephesians, Paul says in him, speaking of Jesus, we also have been made an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Or in verse 14, he says that the Holy Spirit is given as a pledge of our inheritance unto the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. Or in verse 18, Paul writes, so that you with the eyes of your heart being enlightened would know what is the hope of his calling and what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. In other words, we have an incredible inheritance and our inheritance is God himself. It's life. And while that is true, while we have this incredible inheritance, do you realize that God also has an inheritance? That his inheritance is us. So so just as Jesus is our inheritance, we are his. Let me just give you a few verses. I I find these so fascinating. In, In Hebrews chapter one, verse two, it says that God has spoken in these last days to us in his son whom he appointed heir of all things. Do you realize that Jesus is the heir of all things? That that he owns it all. He created it, as as the passage goes on to say, but he actually owns it. It's his inheritance. But this idea of God's people being his inheritance runs throughout the Old Testament. For example, in the book of Deuteronomy, there's this beautiful idea. Moses is talking to the Israelites in chapter 4, verse twenty. And he says, but Yahweh has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace from Egypt to be a people for his own inheritance as today. Think about that. Moses says, oh, people of Israel, do you not realize that God has redeemed you? He's purchased you 
out of captivity to Egypt, and now you are his inheritance, which is the same idea in a spiritual sense that Paul talks about in Titus chapter 2. In Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 29, Moses is speaking to God about the Israelites, and Moses says to God, these are your people, even your inheritance, whom you brought out by your great power and your outstretched arm. And then again in chapter 32, verse 9, it says, For Yahweh's portion is his people. Jacob is the allotment of his inheritance. So you get this idea that the people of God are God's inheritance. They are his possession, which is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 19. Think about this, that, that we are God's possession and his dwelling place. And Paul says, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God and that you are not your own? In other words, you are his. You, as Peter says, have been bought with a price. And, and now you are not just his inheritance, but you are his dwelling place in this world. So think about this twofold reality. God is my inheritance and I am his. And I, I love how that is stated in the book of Song of Solomon. Think about this. The, the bride of the groom in, in Song of Solomon, chapter 6, verse 3, and it's also mentioned in chapter 2, verse 16, and chapter 7, verse 10. But listen to what the beloved says. She says, I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. Isn't that a beautiful statement? And it goes again to that idea of possession, that idea of inheritance, that, wow, I am my beloved's, but my beloved is mine. And it's like God is saying the same thing, that, that you are my inheritance, I am your inheritance. And there's this amazing twofold reality that we get to share in as believers, that because he has redeemed us, because he has purified us, we, we now get to have this rich intimacy and relationship and, and, and oneness with the living God. And he is my inheritance and, and, and I get to possess life. And yet he gets to possess my life and I become his inheritance and I become his dwelling place in this world. That is so incredible. Now, what's interesting about that word possession is that it, it really means reserved for a particular purpose. In other words, the reason he has redeemed me, the, the reason he has purified me is so that he could set me apart for a particular purpose. And in the passage, that particular purpose is that his people are zealous for good works. Now, get a hold of this because this is really important, I think, in our culture today. We are not saved by works. We are saved by grace. But yet, strangely, the New Testament says, but we are saved for works. In other words, the works do, they add nothing to your salvation. And yet now, because you have been purchased, now because you've been purified and set free, and because grace has saved you by faith, do you realize that God now has something for you to do, and that's called good works? So I don't do the good works to be saved. I do the good works as the outflow of being saved. And maybe as one great picture of this, Paul in Ephesians chapter 2 really, really highlights this. 
He says in verse eight and nine, for by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works so that no one may boast. So Paul says, hey, without a doubt, you've been saved through faith by grace. And you had no part of this. This was not your work. This was all God's doing. It was his grace. You merely responded to his grace. You merely responded to his movement. You responded to his Holy Spirit and the the truth of the gospel in your life through faith. But it's not of works. Why? Because you are not allowed to boast about this. If you're going to boast, your boast is in Christ. But then listen to what he says in verse 10 of Ephesians chapter two. He goes right after that and says, hey, this is not of you. This is not of works. And then he says this, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Again, we are not saved by works. Works have no input into our salvation. But once we are saved, works are produced through our lives by the Spirit of God. In other words, because he's redeemed me, because he has purified me, he has set me apart for a particular purpose that he now wants to fill me with his Spirit. And as such, he wants to showcase his life, his love, his gospel through my life to the world. If I am the temple of the Holy Spirit in my world, do you realize that there should be this outflow of good works that come out of me, not for my salvation, but because I am saved? And what's beautiful about this passage is that in Ephesians 2.10, where Paul says we are his workmanship, the word workmanship is the word or the Greek word poema, where we get the English word poem. Do you realize that we are God's poetry to this world, that that God is wanting to say something back in Genesis chapter one, verse 26, when God says, Hey, I'm going to make man in my image. Do you realize that we were made as image bearers that, that, that we were to image God? We are not God. And yet we were to showcase the life of God through us. And because we are filled with his spirit, we were to demonstrate and showcase to the world around us who God Almighty really is. And what you see, obviously, in the fall is that we forsook all that. But now that Christ has redeemed us and purified us and taken us as his possession and set us apart for a unique purpose, do you recognize that that God once again wants to use our lives as image bearers to this world? That, That when the world looks upon your or my life, they should say, wow, there is still a God in the universe. Wow, God, God does want to rescue and save and purify and redeem. Wow, I, I need to be in on that. And what would it look like if your life was God's poetry to this world? What would it look like if he began to declare the wonders of his life and his love and, and the reality of the gospel through you to the world? What an incredible privilege and opportunity we have because he has redeemed and purified us. Can I encourage you, if if you are not living in the reality of the poetry of God in your life, 
Would you spend some time with Jesus and ask him to freshly cleanse you, to freshly purge all that evil, to, to freshly renew your heart and your mind and to use, begin to use your life in this, in this very dark and depraved world to showcase him that, that we were bought with a price. We are not our own. Therefore, we should glorify God with our lives, that, that we were made for good works and that we weren't just to be passive. We're not just to be waiting for the conclusion to happen, whether it's our death or his return, that yes, we are looking for the blessed hope. We are looking for his appearing, but while we do so, we are called to live radical lives for him, that, that this little time that we have on earth is not spent for our pleasure, for our whatever, our lives are to be fully given over to Jesus Christ. Can I just encourage you to freshly do that? Can I encourage you to spend some time today and just surrender yourself afresh to declare your love for Jesus and to ask him to leverage your life and your lips in a way that would showcase him. Man, I want that so badly in my life. I want every moment to showcase the reality of Christ to my world. And that's my prayer for you as well. Well, I hope that's just an encouragement and a blessing to you as we've been walking through Titus chapter two. Isn't the word of God just incredible? And I've said this before, but I don't want to just esteem God's word and go, yay, the word of God is great. I want to actually begin to live it. I want to practically apply it, not just esteem it, but live it day to day by day in my world. And that really is my whole heart behind the whole ministry of Deeper Christian. And if you want other resources or other helps to press you down the narrow way of the cross, I'd encourage you to check out the website. And you can do that by going to deeperchristian.com or by going to the show notes for this episode. But I would love to help you grow spiritually and keep pursuing Jesus Christ, knowing his word, loving him ever more day by day and practically live out the reality of the gospel in our world. Again, there's a whole bunch of resources that you can find by going to deeperchristian.com. Well, until next time, know I am praying for you. I'm cheering you on as we continue to build our lives around Jesus Christ. See you next time.